so you know some some diseases you know covid for example the the number of viruses you need to be exposed to when you inhale it in is actually not that many in order for you to get covid but with cholera you need quite a high dosage quite a high number of bacteria because the bacteria has to get past the stomach acid um in order to infect you so um that that means that the dosage is important now obviously if you're working in a environment where there's diarrhea everywhere everyone's going to be exposed to large quantities hence it can be quite difficult to control with poor sanitation but if you've got good sanitary practices and good hand washing regimes and all the rest of it actually you know typically health workers don't become infected with cholera Mm. Um, but uh, obviously in those camps there was none of that so what what i'm hearing is a lot of these diseases and a lot of these deaths are, are down to very poor sanitation and a lack of just very very basic medical supplies absolutely and 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 that's what sort of struck me you know when you talked to me about doing this i obviously went off and did a bit of reading was was how short-sighted the whole thing was which is that if the japanese had treated their prisoners a bit better they actually would have got a lot more work out of them. Welcome back to the Death Railway Revisited podcast. I'm Nick Fordham, and inspired by the Alec Guinness movie The Bridge on the River Kwai, I'm on a journey to discover what happened here in Southeast Asia 80 years ago. Why had a conservative estimate approximately 100,000 people died, maybe more, constructing a railway from Thailand to Burma? And in doing so, I've unearthed some surprising facts about what actually happened and what did not. There was no bridge over the River Kwai. In fact, there was no River Kwai. Absolutely, absolutely. Along the way, I'm talking to experts to help me piece the story together. People like the man whose voice you've just heard, Rod Beatty, creator of the Thailand-Burma Railway Centre in Kanchanaburi, and Dr Ollie Waters, a gastroenterologist from Perth, whom you heard at the beginning of this episode. And to get a first-hand contemporary perspective, I'll also be reading extracts from diaries, letters and memoirs from POWs who were there and whose lives were forever shaped by their experiences on the Death Railway. I visited the famous bridge and the infamous Hellfire Pass and I'm continuing my journey along the rail route with Andrew Snow of the Thai Burma Railway Centre. We're a few kilometres further down the line from Hellfire Pass exploring an old cutting at Kinsayok. We're checking our way through again. Following the railway embankment. Along a railway trail. See all the Indians in here? Yes. Sure, all the dirt came from here. Ah. They're digging there, carrying it up. All around here. All over here. Everywhere. Yeah. So we're walking along the embankment and below us, on the left and the right, uh, great big holes and indentments in the Earth. And that's where they dug out the soil in order 
build up this embankment that we're walking along now. It's the only evidence really that there was a railway line here once. This, this embankment, there's no sleepers or nails and also those big holes and dips in the earth around, that's where the soil for the embankments were made. So we're continuing along and we're now in a cutting, not as high as Hellfire Pass, but still considerable. There's very, very large rocks on the other side, which would have taken a hell of a lot to do to blast and clear away. And then, of course, once you've done that, you want to break all the rocks down so that they're manageable pieces to take and put further down the line as ballast. So as you walk along here, you get a, a sense just of the multiple jobs that would have been required to have built this railway. It's not just about laying sleepers, it's about making cuttings, making embankments, blasting rocks, making ballast. There's so many things to do. You can probably hear after half an hour's walking, I'm a little bit breathless. It's very hot and you're very lucky because this is audio rather than visual. You don't get to see how sweaty I am and how sweaty my t-shirt is. I'll just leave that up to your imagination. One of the things that happens whenever I stop walking along the railway is I immediately get plagued by flies. I don't know if you can hear them as I stand here, but just the moment you stop there around you, they're trying to get in your nose and your eyes and your mouth. And uh, it must have driven them crazy all those years ago. And of course, flies are bearers of diseases as mosquitoes are. And it's become a huge problem for the prisoners uh, and the workers on the railway. So that they started to have huge campaigns to get rid of all these flies. Uh, the figures are just staggering about how many they had to catch a day. I read that up to 20,000 flies could be killed daily in a camp by a dedicated fly swatting team. And camps often had a designated rat catcher too. At Nompleduk, it was a man who cut his rat-catching teeth in the sewers of Liverpool, and he would bag around 200 rodents a month. In another camp, all men were required to present a 100 dead flies at evening roll call. Inevitably, a thriving trade in dead flies was established. Most animals were not seen as pests, but rather as an additional source of sustenance. Vegans and vegetarians might want to turn the volume down, as I list, in a roughly ascending order of size, the animals caught and consumed on the railway. Insects, slugs, snails, frogs, rats and bats, fish, lizards, snakes, birds, cats, monkeys, dogs, pigs and cattle. Basically, Anything that could go into the pot, went into the pot. One couldn't afford to be fussy. Rice was sometimes the only food available. One veteran calculated he ate rice 
for 3,800 consecutive meals during his captivity. Another gave his memoirs the delicious title, Turned Out Rice Again, and Frank Murray, the sports-mad Belfast doctor, normally so thoughtful and loving in his letters, wrote to his fiancée, If you ever dare show me a plate of rice again when we're married, I shall scream. Refusing rice was not always about being fussy. Ian Dennis Peake, who had both volunteered and surrendered with his brother in Singapore, had an odd, perhaps psychosomatic experience that terrified him. Depression, a symptom of beriberi, deepens. Quite suddenly, I'm tipped nearer to the edge of the final downward slide. At morning rice, I find I can't eat. It's not that I've lost my appetite, which I've been warned may happen, but I simply cannot put rice in my mouth. The sight of it is repellent. My stomach heaves. The smell revolts me. I don't want to, can't face it, and won't eat it. This is ridiculous. I force myself to take up a spoonful of rice, but I can't lift it to my mouth. My elbow locks rigidly, my shoulders too. No effort I can make produces the smallest movement. I take the spoon in my other hand, my right arm immediately relaxes and my left seizes up solidly. He tries again and again, then asks a pal to spoon-feed him, but his mouth tightens up and his jaws lock. The implication suddenly hits me hard. I can't feed myself. I cannot be fed. The doctors have nothing to offer me. The consequence is plain and unavoidable and horribly close. Christ, I'm scared to panic point. There must be something I can do, or I'm dead, literally. After a whole week of this torture, his appetite returned. Despite the unpopularity of rice, Australian medical officer Colonel Albert Coates, a 47-year-old Gallipoli veteran, forcefully insisted his men eat whatever was put in front of them. The route home is inscribed in the bottom of every man's Dixie. Every time it's filled with rice, eat it. If you vomit it up again, eat some more. Even if it comes up again, some good will remain. If you get a bad egg, eat it no matter how bad it may appear. An egg is only bad when the stomach will not hold it. A poor diet, unhygienic conditions and unclean water were the biggest killers on the railway. It's entirely up to you men whether you live or commit suicide. Stanley Pavillard, the bamboo doctor, whom we last heard describing Wampo Viaduct, said to a new camp of soldiers in his care, If you want to live, you will do as I say. If you want to die, all you have to do is drink some unboiled water. I spoke with Dr Ollie Waters, whom we heard at the beginning of this episode, to understand more about the diseases that the prisoners caught, how they caught them, what the symptoms were like, and how preventable these diseases actually are. Approximately 70% of the fatalities on the railway were due to just four diseases. Dysentery, cholera, beriberi and malaria. I started by asking Ollie to describe the symptoms of the biggest killer on the railway. Dysentery. You feel unwell with fever, often feel nauseated. Some, some dysenteries can make you vomit as well. 
and then you generally start getting abdominal cramps and then you follow on by profuse uh, diarrhea, often watery. <clears throat> and it can be, with certain infections, it can be bloody diarrhea as well. And of course, the main problem, particularly in the tropics, is going to be dehydration related to that diarrhea. So you can have profuse diarrhea, profuse vomiting, and, um, and that can be very debilitating. Yeah. So I think most, most people have experienced what gastro is like, and it, it feels terrible. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned blood there, because I've got a quote here from John Coast from his book that he released about a year after the, the war ended. And he says, when my friend Jansen was strong enough to speak, he told me that to see dysentery cases on parade with blood streaming down the backs of their legs and compelling to work was not uncommon. On reading through some of the atrocity accounts in the camp office, I discovered that Jansen himself, after being made to work with dysentery and malaria, with a temperature of 104, tried to throw himself in the river, being mentally deranged. So... <clears throat> So, so that's what's happening there. When he says that they've got sort of blood streaming down there, the, the back of their legs, that, that's exactly what's going on, is it? Yeah, so, so when you, when, with these infections, the most common one that we see is, is Campylobacter or Salmonella, which you can get from eating, you know, bad chicken. Uh, that's typically where you get that from. Um, you, you know, if you look inside, if you, if you do a colonoscope, you look inside someone's bowel when they've got active uh, infection, what you find is these ulcers and inflammation. It sort of looks like the inside of the bowel has been attacked with a cheese grater. You know? And so imagine having that and it just diarrhea and bleeding and, and feeling absolutely horrendous. What's really interesting about that, that diarrhea is the fact he becomes, you know, sort of, uh, mentally, uh, his mental states changes, you know, he's hallucinating mm. or whatever. So, I mean, and that's one of the side effects of, of beriberi, which you mentioned, um, and all these vitamin and mineral deficiencies that malnourished people have is that it, it totally changes the way your brain works. And then on top of that, you add the insult of fever and infection and, and, and you know, these people have become delirious. So, you know, imagine that sort of fever dream that people are having. They're sort of these these men are living that nightmare for days and days, and then being forced to work and in being... tropical heat as well. This is unbelievable, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you've mentioned cholera. Let's go on to cholera. Just tell me how you get cholera first of all. So, cholera typically is in is in the water supply, and it comes from a bacteria called Vibrio. Um, how, how it actually works is the cholera itself produces a toxin and the toxin gets internalized into the cell that lines the, the gut uh, of your small bowel and, and it hijacks the, the internal workings of the cell. So it, it activates this, this channel in the cell membrane where all of the chloride um, ions inside the cell just pour out. And, and, that, and when the chloride ions pour out, then the sodium pours out, follow it, and then, and then the potassium pours out. So you get this massive... Uh, release of, of these electrolytes into your gut, which then sucks all the water with them. And mm. so you get this profuse watery diarrhea. It's typically described as rice water. So, you know, if, if you cook, if you wash rice in, in water, it, it has that sort of white, cloudy sort of nature to it. So that's what the diarrhea looks like. So once you've got, once you've got the profuse watery diarrhea, you, you basically lose more than a litre in volume per hour. 
Um, and so it's the dehydration that kills you and the electrolyte disturbance because you're losing all these electrolytes. You know, you, 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 that's where the cramps, the muscle cramps come in and the abdominal cramps. And, and you, you basically become hypovolemic. So you, it's, it's almost like bleeding to death. Your blood volume, you just don't have enough volume in your blood and then you die. Um, it's, it sounds incredibly painful and uncomfortable oh, way to die. It's absolutely horrific. And, and it acts incredibly fast. So, so there was a, an outbreak of cholera in Haiti recently when they had that natural disaster, all the terrible things that happened to Haiti. And, you know, the average life expectancy for someone who got symptoms, you know, if they let, presented late to hospital, was only 12 hours. You know, they'd be dead within 12 hours of developing symptoms. So it's, it's still a killer today. Um, but interestingly, you know, it's very treatable. You know, if you, if you can hydrate someone, mm. the, the, the survival rate's very good. So if I had some electrolytes or, or some, some salt water, some saline, I, I, I could certainly. So, so, t- so typically you, you give, you know, an, you know a, an isotonic kind of replacement fluid. Mm. So you, it's lots of salt and lots of sugar and, and water mixed together that you drink. Um, if you, people are really dehydrated or vomiting, obviously they can't rehydrate. So you need to give them IV fluids. Mm. Um, but um, obviously the earlier you catch it, the better. So, and, and the, what they described in that isolation hut, you know, that's, they have this, uh, these things called cholera cots, which they still use in outbreaks today, which are basically, it's like a stretcher that's got a hole cut in it. So you lie on your back and your, your bum hangs out the hole. And mm. they just put a bucket underneath you. So, you, you know, you just lie there feeling terrible as they measure the amount of diarrhea you're having and then replace the fluids accordingly. I mean, it's truly horrific. And, and the other thing, the other thing that I, uh, is you know, the, the mention of the stench. You know, what's interesting and, and is that diarrhea, different types of infective diarrhea have a particular smell. And, and this cholera diary, I've never smelt it, but it's classically described as sort of a fishy odour. Mm. So it's, it's the stench of death. Approximately 50% of the men who caught cholera in camps with no medicine died. In camps with proper medical facilities, the fatality rates dropped to just 1%. Finally, Ollie and I discussed beriberi and tropical ulcers. So, so beriberi is a, it's thiamine deficiency, and, it, and you're particularly prone to thiamine deficiency if you just eat white rice. So, so there are high amounts of thiamine in rice, but it's in the husks of the rice. So if you eat brown rice, you get lots of thiamine. But it's if you eat polished white rice, uh, it's, that's, and that's your only sort of form of nutrition, that's where people get beriberi. So, so thiamine is really important in, in lots of cellular processes and it affects, it's particularly important in nerves and it's particularly important in your heart and your kidneys and things. So there are two types of beriberi. There's dry beriberi, which it, it just affects the nerves. So you get this sort of um, peripheral numbness in your hands and feet uh, from the nerves basically dying, which is quite similar to what people with diabetes can get if they've got long-term poorly controlled diabetes is peripheral neuropathy and then you've got wet beriberi wet beriberi is where the heart um it doesn't you know, stops working properly and the, the muscle needs the thiamine to work properly and the heart then becomes dilated and the kidneys stop working properly as well so you then start to retain 
salt and water so you to retain fluid in your tissues and all your tissues become very swollen so you get this uh, what we call edema this peripheral edema so your legs are swollen and anything that's the, the the edema travels down to the lowest point so if you're standing up your legs are swollen if you're lying down then whatever the lowest part of you is become swollen and so that's wet berry berry and what's interesting about all of these other deficiencies there are lots of other are lots of other vitamin b, uh, b vitamins they predispose you to gastrointestinal infections so if you if you're malnourished and have these vitamin mineral deficiencies you're unable to fight these infections particularly well so and and they also they also cause changes in your thought processes you but you're because they are they're important for nerve function you know, again it goes back to these sort of all, all everyone in that camp who's malnourished will their their brains will not be working properly um, so it truly a horrific experience so very similar to that that extract we read out earlier about about that guy who was almost hallucinating and threw himself into the river um, I've read that that's interesting because I've read that sometimes they had to tie they used to get sort of not string but sort of maybe vine from a tree and tie it around their toes and then tie that to their knees because I suppose it was like the, the, their feet were so numb that it was difficult to walk with them. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's probably related to the, the motor component. So your peripheral neuropathy can be sensory or motor or both. And beriberi, dry beriberi, gives you a, a, a motor uh, component, which means that you get foot drop. So when you're walking along, you can't flex your foot backwards, so your feet drag along the ground. Um so yeah, that's that would be what they're doing is trying to keep their keep their feet from dragging along the ground. And of course, in in tropics, you know, if you get a little cut or anything else in the skin, then you get a horrible tropical ulcer, which is just a nasty skin infection that never heals. It's pretty unpleasant. Then Ollie really brings this all home to me in a surprising way. So I mean, I've I've had tropical ulcers. I I lived in on a conservation project in in Tanzania for mm. three months, and the only we, you know, we lived on this very basic place with uh, the only place to wash was in a mangrove swamp, and exactly the same thing happened. Any sort of cut on your skin would just get infected, and you'd you'd have these open sores that you that would be there for weeks and weeks. I mean, luckily we had antibiotics, <laughs> so it was, so it's okay. They got better. They got better with antibiotics, but um, you know they they, they they could get really nasty. Uh, well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll read an extract. This is Harold actually, uh, who wrote a book called Prisoner of Japan, and untreated. This is this is what he describes it as. There was an appalling state of sick tropical ulcers. Cases seen myself of legs bared to the bone from ankle to knee. One man's thighs and scrotum completely rotted away. Indescribable stench. Ulcers were scraped with spoons every day or cleaned with leeches, accompanied by cries of men in their agony. At night, no sleep for the wretched patients who moaned all night long. Their only hope for the morning was to look forward to a repetition of all the previous day's agonies and torture. This went on for weeks in many cases, men dying horribly. Nothing could be done to alleviate their ghastly suffering. What hope was there? No man on earth deserves such a death. Oh, it is, it's just truly horrific. In the end, many ulcers were so bad, the only answer was amputation. Colonel Carrie Outram, our Changi swimmer, a now camp commandant of Chunkai Hospital Camp, describes one of the many operations he witnessed. 
Several medical orderlies stood by to assist the surgeon, all of them only in shorts with a sweatband round their forehead to avoid sweat dripping on the patient. There was no proper saw, but the British camp carpenter had supplied his tenon saw and this had been well boiled before use. Swabs and bandages were bits of gauze or other material stained brown by repeated use on previous occasions. Flies and blue bottles and their hundreds buzzed incessantly round and were flicked off when they settled on the scene of the operation. In well under a quarter of an hour, the operation was concluded. And Outram recalls that the recovery period was often surprisingly quick. It was a common occurrence for me to find a man in hospital in the afternoon contentedly smoking a cigarette, having had a leg amputated in the morning, saying how much better he felt. Believe me, I know how grim this part of the story is to listen to. I make no apology for it. I think it's important to understand how unnecessary the suffering of these men was. With the most basic of antibiotics, those men need not have lost their limbs. Disease spread through the camps with alarming rapidity. Here's Andrew Snow and me discussing this when we visited the site of one of the most notorious camps on the rail line. So we're at Linton Camp, which is a Dutch camp, and Andrew and I yesterday were talking about disease. And Andrew, there was a big... Uh, breakout of disease here that we were talking about yesterday when we were looking yes. at the statistics in the office. Uh, yes. tell, tell us briefly about uh, what happened here. Well, Linton uh, had the um, dubious name of Dead Man's Camp and in the early months of 1943, February, March, April, May, hundreds of Dutch came up to... Well, they came up in... January, February, but by the middle of 1943, hundreds of them are dying here from what they call acute enteritis, which is a, a stomach infection, a st- infection of the intestines. Uh, we don't know exactly why, but probably 80% of the guys that died here died of enteritis. Whether somebody brought a, the disease to the camp or it came up on with some food that was given to them but anyway the the death toll here was huge and most of them died of the same complaint mm. enteritis so it, it just shows that one of the challenges was was lack of medicine often that disease would break out in these camps and they'd be very infectious diseases and without the basic medical supplies these diseases would be fatal. Colonel Tuzi, after building the bridges at Tamakan Camp Canterbury, was tasked with starting a hospital camp with a pitiful amount of medical provisions. My supply of drugs from Singapore was practically exhausted by spring 1943, and issues from the Japanese were negligible. The first I received for a hospital of 3,000 patients was a few iodine crystals, three bandages, 
and five aspirin tablets. Henry Hecking, a 40-year-old Dutch doctor, was born and brought up in the Dutch East Indies. His grandmother was a herbologist and healer. He put the knowledge he learned from her into good use, and the plants and herbs he used as medicine saved many lives. He collected the husks of ground rice, rich in vitamin B, to make cakes that helped prevent beriberi. He scraped the fungus off pomelo skins to use as a form of penicillin. He gave ground charcoal to men suffering from dysentery. Hecking's camp had one of the best survival rates along the entire railway, and the Americans in that camp never forgot the man and his medicine, paying for him to fly to the US for reunions for many years after the war. One veteran saw him as an holistic healer. He's not a mere physician. His practice of medicine under the worst conditions was not restricted to the attempt to heal the physical body. It also brought out his ability as a psychologist to somehow treat the mind, spirit, soul of these prisoners of war who had little or no reason to be confident about the future. Henry Hecking and the other doctors on the railway are a beacon of hope in this bleak story. I discussed them with Rod Beatty and Andrew Snow at the Thai Burma Railway Centre. Here's Rod. And there is not a single medical officer on this railway who doesn't go out of this whole story in, with the greatest, greatest regard from all of their men. No single medical officer. They just went out of here as heroes, universally. Absolutely. I've read so much about them and I just, I'm in awe really of some of the medical officers. They are the heroes of this story. Tell me about a couple of either of you. Tell me about a couple of them. I mean, obviously, Weary Dunlop's the most famous one, but as you rightly pointed out, he's not the only one. There's so many of them. And their work under difficult conditions and with so little instruments and medical supplies is quite extraordinary. This Weary Dunlop has been singled out, not necessarily by himself, but by some of his men. And Weary was a hero in his camp environment to his thousand men. Every other medical officer was a hero to his group of men. Roy Mills with Pond's Party of Air Force, one young medical officer, just newly graduated, captain looking after 700 men. He was an absolute hero to his group of men. Rolly Richards, the British doctors, you just go on, all of them to their group of men but they were never publicised and tell me Andrew a little bit about what would the daily work be of a medical officer how would their their day be I mean how long would their day be uh, particularly in some of the camps where there was real uh, disease and illnesses well it depends on who you look at and uh, but usually they'd be up before dawn Mm. and they'd be working to late into the night. They might get three, four hours sleep of a night and then back on sick parade because they have to be out first thing in the morning to determine who's going to go out to work and who's going to stay in the hospital. So they have to have at least had a, a look at, at the men in the hospital that the Japanese are trying to pull out 
and saying, no, this guy can't go. If you have to take someone, take him. He shouldn't really go anyway. Uh, so they're, they're, a, uh, they're standing between the Japanese wanting every man out of hospital and them trying to keep every man in hospital. And obviously the Japanese are going to win because they're in charge, but they're doing their best to uh, keep the very sick men from having to be sent out to work. And that entails being up probably 18 hours a day or something like that um, from early in the morning till late at night, um, either seeing to men or writing up notes or... Um, you know, putting lists of uh, diseases in and, and all that sort of stuff that they have to do after they've seen their patients. Mm. And operations as well during the day, and if they needed to do so. And it must be fairly heartbreaking work to be sort of singling out men who you know are not fit enough for work, but nevertheless saying you've got to go because you have to fulfil a quota of men that you have to put out to work. Absolutely. The trying to pick out the fittest of the de desperately sick mm. because you have to go... Because if you don't, you'll be dragged out and so will your really sick mate beside you. Mm. Uh, the Japanese have a quota. We have to fill that. Sometimes you could fight and have that quota reduced slightly, but men were being taken out on stretches if they needed to be to get the numbers up. And you can't even imagine going out on a stretcher, be given a hammer and sat behind a, beside a pile of rocks to create your railway ballast. This role of selecting who went on work duties and who stayed behind was especially onerous. Roly Richards, the man Rod just mentioned, was a 26-year-old Australian doctor, just three years out of Sydney University Medical School. Here he recalls his responsibilities on the railway in Burma. I realised we were playing God every day, all the time. You go to work. You can stay in today, playing with people's lives. The Japanese insisted on a certain quota of men going out to work each day, whilst doctors did their best to protect the sick, despite the personal consequences. The Dutch doctor, Henry Hecking, was greatly admired by his Americans for his stubbornness and refusal to let sick men go to work. One of them recalls it earned him so many lashes with a bamboo pole that his body was so black and blue he could not lie on it. A prisoner who worked with Weary Dunlop recalls a wonderful man. Lots of times I've seen him line up boys going to work before dawn and say to the weakest of them, Could you battle on today, son? I'll give you a spell tonight. And these blokes would battle it out for old Weary. They knew that if they didn't, the Japanese would take some really sick man out of the hospital and make them work instead. I visited one of the camps that Weary Dunlop worked at with Andrew Snow on our trip along the railway line. Andrew, tell us where we are now. This is called Canyu River. So this is on the river where the other camps are on the railway line. The railway line is above us, a couple of kilometres higher up on the side of the hill. This camp was a uh, used as a hospital for men who'd been working on the railway, who'd become sick and were 
wanted to be sent back down to Tarsau Hospital. Mm. So they gathered them here and then sent them down. There was a couple of cemeteries here for men that died here. And the rest of the men here were either transporting from the river. Barges would pull up with um, provisions, um, maybe building materials, and they had to be carted up to the railway line. Uh, Which is about three kilometres from where we are now, I would probably, guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then the men had to walk up there and then come back down here of, a, of an evening to this camp. So it was uh, a fairly um, important camp for the railway, for the men working up above them, because, for example, in wet season, the roads were basically impassable, so your only method of supply is by river. Mm. So this camp is where your supplies came from. This camp and the next camp along, which was Hintock River Camp, but this camp was predominantly... British to start with, and then in uh, about February, March of 1943, Weary Dunlop came in here and built a hospital here for the men who'd been working on the railway. Yeah. And Andrew's just shown me a picture by the artist Jack Chalker, which shows what a beautiful spot this is, actually. It's a very peaceful spot. Uh, And yet, all those years ago, it would have been quite some place to be and those long working days as Andrew's just said it was about three kilometres uphill walk to um, to the working areas and that's three kilometres back again and we're talking about 14 hour working days for some of these guys so that's a very very long day despite how beautiful this place is it's also a lot of flies here I don't know if the microphone's picking that up, but as I'm speaking, I've got flies all around my face and going into my ears. We've moved a little bit close to the river. In fact, we're essentially on the river, on a little houseboat, and you can probably hear it flowing past us. They've created... Little floating huts for people to stay on and enjoy this tranquil spot. I've just seen a beautiful kingfisher skimming the river and flying to the other side of the river. And here is Weary Dunlop writing in his diary about that exact spot where Andrew and I have just been. The cemetery is marked by a cross down by the river and walled in by a bamboo fence. The graves, 26 in number, are each surrounded by stones and marked by a bamboo cross and nameplate. A wistful silence brooded over the scene. The pathetic newly turned earth, the stones and bamboo crosses, the stark simplicity of the bamboo fence, the soft murmuring of the river Quainoi and the rustle of bamboos in the tall surrounding jungle. Then parties returning from work on the new road came wearily by. Sallow, haggard, bearded, gaunt and pitifully thin. Amid their chatter we returned, I thinking, I wonder how many more will eventually find peace there beside the Menem Quay Noi, and how long it will be before the relentless jungle obliterates all trace of their coming 
and their departure. What some of the doctors did, at times with no medical supplies whatsoever, is nothing short of miraculous. I feel it's important to say the names of just a few. These men deserve to be remembered. Men we've already met, like Colonel Weary Dunlop, Albert Coates, Rowley Richards, Stanley Pavillard, but also others like Roy Mills, Bruce Hunt, Cyril Popvardy, Frank Cahill and Arthur Moon, who was a gynaecologist in civilian life. They worked tirelessly to save countless lives with the little equipment they had, often improvising and experimenting with what they could lay their hands on. If you visit the Thai Burma Railway Centre in Kanchanaburi, you'll see examples of this ingenuity. False limbs, UVF drips and blood transfusions made of bamboo, hence the title of Pavillard's memoirs, Bamboo Doctor, and operating equipment made with cutlery and carpenter's tools. Helping these qualified doctors and surgeons was a group of volunteer medical orderlies. Orderlies were men, often with no medical experience, who offered to help out as much as they could. It was a deeply unpleasant and exposed position. Caring for men dying of cholera, washing down dysentery patients, assisting in operations and amputations. One volunteer was 32-year-old Australian Captain Fred Stahl, whom we last met vividly describing the silence as Singapore fell. He offered to help the camp surgeon, Captain Frank Cahill, a 29-year-old compatriot who had graduated from Melbourne University Medical School at the impressively young age of 21. Stahl describes Cahill's work and working environment. The operating theatre was a small hut, about 10 feet square, with bamboo sides and a floor of bamboo slats. The roof was of a tap. The operating theatre was made from bamboo, with the tops also of bamboo slats. Outside the door, we built a fire to boil the water in which we sterilised the instruments, including the Japanese saw. No praise can be too high for the work done by Frank Cahill in those primitive conditions. Looking back on the circumstances under which he worked, he actually fell through the bamboo slat floor in the middle of one operation. One wonders that he had any success at all. Altogether, he carried out 40 amputations. And not one patient died during the operation. However, men still died in the camp at such a rate that they were cremated rather than buried. Stahl yet again volunteered to help. I was walking past the fire a little later with our surgeon Frank Cahill, when Frank suddenly exclaimed, my God, he's waving at us. It was almost literally true. Quite inexperienced in the art of cremation, we had put the bodies on the pyre face up, and no doubt caused by the contraction of the sinews and the tendons, one of the dead bodies had taken up a sitting position as we passed, and one arm slowly rose. We learned from experience, and in all subsequent cremations, the bodies were laid face down. In the absence of a chaplain, Stahl also read the funeral services over the bodies before cremation. 
After the first service, he observed, Although I could not know it at the time, I was to read the cremation service over a total of 666 bodies before I left Tambaya. 606 bodies in three and a half months. It was a heartbreaking task. I imagine an undertaker's work becomes quite impersonal, for he deals in the main with unknown bodies. For me, however, the situation was quite different. Each man had been a comrade in arms. Many were lads from my own unit. Quite a few were personal friends. I took great care to recover some token ashes for each of the deceased. These were placed in a bamboo container and buried in a tiny plot marked by a small cross. In the next episode, I'll complete my journey on the railway and I'll learn how some men would do anything to survive. I'll also learn how life changed for the better and worse once the railway was complete. If you're finding this interesting, please visit the website www.deathrailwayrevisited.com where you'll find more information and photos of the location I visited. This podcast is by no means an exhaustive or comprehensive account of the Death Railway. It's based on where I went and who I spoke to. So if you'd like to know more, there's a suggested reading and watching list on the website. I do hope you find them interesting.